like? I, I, I somehow feel this is the writer's chair, but I, again, oh, there are no rules. There okay. are no rules. All right. Okay, here. Uh, thank you for coming. This is the sixth. Sixth. Hi, Richard. Uh, this is the sixth in a uh, an irregular and ongoing series of of um, meetings with encounters with is the pretentious word I think um, writers I like a lot. <laughs> Uh, those of you who have attended uh, some of the others, or um, there's some people here I recognize who have attended most of them, uh, sort of know, know the format uh, and the point of the series, uh, which is to give a forum, uh, well, to writers I like a lot, and who are also writers that I feel for one reason or another as, are not as well known as they should be. Now take that, of course, in context, uh, uh, we've ha we started with a Turkish writer who was just getting known uh, in, in, in this country because his books were just coming out. I mean, well, he was already published in England, but really not well known, only in the, this last book. Uh, did he reach a, a wider audience? Orhan Pamuk. Uh, we've had a, a Canadian writer, uh, Anne Carson, a, a poet and prose writer. We've had the American novelist and, sh and short story writer, Norman Rush. We've had uh, Peter Nadash, the Hungarian writer whom nobody had ever heard of until there was this enormous book, which I think is really a great book, called uh, Book of Memories that came out this year or, or late last year, et cetera, et cetera. And the mix is supposed to be, I've left a couple of people out uh, because this is the sixth, uh, the, the mix is supposed to be, of course, American writers and writers from everywhere else. The next writer uh, that was due, the announcements luckily hadn't yet um, uh, been sent out, uh, had to cancel on us because, in fact, he's not coming to America. It was the uh, Italian writer Antonio Tabucchi, who was supposed to be with us at the end of March. And we'll certainly try to get him the next time he does come to America. Um, tonight, it's um, Maureen Howard, who is a writer I greatly admire. and, and uh, when I say writers who aren't well known as they should be, well, of course, Maureen Howard is a very well-known American writer. And, uh, her new book has just come out. Her books get marvelous reviews. She's um, admired by many serious and important American writers. In fact, I would say all, practically all of them who read, and that isn't all of them. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I have the feeling, and it isn't because uh, uh, Maureen has, we are friends, it isn't because she's ever complained to me, but I have the feeling that I'm just not seeing her name often enough in uh, the sort of standard accounts of who's really important in American letters now and who is building a, a major body of work. Uh, she's a rather unpredictable writer. The, the, her novels are, are uh, uh, quite different from each other. They, in, in a way, get, as far as I'm concerned, and Robert Boyers, her distinguished conversant, the editor of one of the best magazines in the country, Salma Gundi, uh, will, I'm sure, draw her out to give an account of her work and that I certainly don't want to a anticipate. But what strikes me is that the books are getting uh, ever larger and more important. It isn't a, a literary 
topic to discuss the sociology of reputation. That's a subliterary topic. So I don't want to dwell on that, and I hope they don't dwell on that. And they're, they're, Maureen is not complaining. I'm complaining uh, that this is a wonderful body of work, and it's a great privilege uh, to have her and Robert Boyers here with us tonight. Thanks. Thank you, Susan. I thought we might begin with um, a question about uh, design. The, the word design um, comes readily uh, to the mind, I think, of, of any reader of your, uh, of your recent fiction, certainly. Um, design as in the weaving, um, say, of a sumptuous um, tapestry rather than design, um, as in the ordering of events um, in a narrative um, uh, so that they um, produce particular um, narrative effects associated with the structure of the novel as a whole. Um, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your own sense of, of design um, in the composing um, of a novel like a, Lo a Lover's Almanac. Um, this, of course, is a, um, it's an old question, the relationship between design of one sort and design of another. Um, it's an issue much um, discussed in uh, the critical writings of, of Henry James. Um, it's an, an issue that Roland Barthes uh, had much to say about. And, um, and again, it's not an issue that always comes readily to mind with every serious uh, work of fiction, but it definitely is uh, um, a question that comes readily to mind with yours. So I, I thought we might begin there. Well, we can go back to the tapestry. That's the easiest way for me to do it, to say something about design. And you know, uh, very often with um, uh, women's work, they talk about quilts. Well, I'm not quilting. I'm not quilting. That's different. That's different. That's putting the same pieces together. No, I'm much more interested in the idea of tapestry. Uh, for design, I would perhaps uh, think about narrative form. But um, tapestries have uh, are one organic work, but they have different stories. They have stories uh, that you can look at. You can look at the, the rabbit nibbling in one corner of the tapestry, and you see the unicorn in the middle, and so forth. And so there's a, a whole area, but everything comes together. Everything does actually work together. And the other way I like to think about it is uh, in terms about in terms of form that I'm interested in. Now this doesn't get directly to the almanac form, but it does have to do with that dreary term. I'm so tired of hearing nonlinear. Uh, you know, come on, nonlinear. Uh, Shahrazad is really nonlinear, except for the days you have to count. You know, the time you have to count off. But in any case, I also like to think of the idea of a Chinese screen or a Chinese scroll. My daughter gave me a wonderful video um, in which David Hockney uh, 
talks about how excited he is he, that he has seen what a Chinese scroll really is, and he keeps unrolling and looking. Here's a story, and the emperor's going down there. There's another story, and another story, and another story, and it had great influence on his photography, uh, in which he decided he couldn't bear anymore the frame around it, and he wanted to take it apart and make the photographs, if you've ever seen any of those Hockneys, uh, make them overlap and tell different views, different stories. Uh, and uh, so I do think in terms of scroll and tapestry, um, we can go from there. <laughs> There's a lot more to say about form. Um, this is a question not um, by any means unrelated, though just a, a little bit different. Um, I wanted to ask you at what point, um, this is a, a question without a general answer, um, an, an answer you can only sort of work at. At what point does music, um, assonance, internal chiming of sound and accent within a line of prose um, become, in your sense of it, as you, again, as you compose, um, excessive for a prose writer? Um, I'm asking a question basically about the music of prose. Um, you are, I mean, very clearly a writer who pushes the line, I would say, between um, prose and poetry in a very adventurous way. You're not at all, it seems to me, timid about the music of your line. You're not uneasy about a page on which um, one reads uh, of a woman strutting in stiletto heels who paps her pearly breasts um, who lives in a loft littered with, and so on. Lots of chiming, lots of accent. I once, um, I once put a question very much like this to um, my friend William Gass, who said that he never asked himself the question when it became excessive because, he said, it never became excessive. There was oh, never a oh, point oh, oh, at oh. which you could go well. too far uh, <laughs> okay. with this sort of thing. So I thought I might ask you a little yeah. bit about you that. You have to be careful that you don't get lost in that sort of thing. Um, I, it, it seems to come naturally to me, uh, or maybe not naturally. I started my writing life as a poet. I was a very bad undergraduate poet. I hope that they are never seen. I hope that they have died <laughs> in some. And I, I, you know, went to college at the same time, Smith College at the same time as uh, Sylvia Plath. And so what can I say that I hope that those scraps are dead and gone. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, um, uh, I've, always, uh, I've always heard metrics and I've always, I, I, it's very, very, the line is very interesting to me. But when I'm writing uh, a paragraph, I'm writing a paragraph. I don't really uh, think of it that way, though I do what, um, idiots do when they read. I mouth everything out loud to myself, you know. <laughs> you know they always say about people who read and they use their lips. Well, I do that a lot. But if you look at, um, I always like to use Virginia Woolf for this example. If you look at her sentences, if you look at a paragraph, they, the paragraph kind of, she, she orchestrates a paragraph so that it comes to a kind of um, amazing climax wherever she wants that to fall, and then she works her way out of it. And I, I think I'm conscious of that sort of thing, an orchestration. But yeah, the ear is very important to me. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have the sense in uh, composing that 
um, the sound of, of a, a group of words will dictate the direction of the paragraph? Well, I don't think of it that way, no. Though perhaps that does happen. Uh, I can think of a, some places in this book where the uh, capital letters in it that make an angry nam, nam, nam about Vietnam mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. Louise's ang anger at her father never having told her that he was involved uh, in that war in any way at all, and it mm -hmm. comes out nam, nam, nam. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing rises always to the surface of, of, of people's... Then you're imitating voices, and you're, you're going into, um, into others' uh, vocal <laughs> patterns almost, mm -hmm. ad adopting them. Do you know what I mean? Sure, sure. Um, though again, I, I think at, at certain points in the narrative, one, at least I do, I have the sense that the music of the line um, is so compelling um, as, as to dominate um, one's impression of uh -huh. that passage. So, so that one might, might go so far as to suppose that, that it was the sound of, of the words mm -hmm brought together there that dictated the momentum of, of the but you, you material. But still, you still have to tell your story, though. Mm -hmm. You want to tell yeah. your story, yeah. And, and you don't want that to get in the way. I mean, Mr. Gass may do, he does something <laughs> different than I do that yeah. way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you do definitely want to tell your story. You don't want to get in the way. The other thing I think that feeds into my sense of hearing um, words and all is that aside from being a bad poet, I was a bad actress. So if you put those two together, and you come out with the idea of, of um, the voicing of, of sentences or the voicing of paragraphs. Um, I suppose that feeds into my relation to language, mm -hmm. to words, a mm -hmm. lot, yeah. Mm. Um, this is a little different, but, but still very much related. Um, you obviously have a, a feeling for um, what might be called visual complements um, to the written language for uh, diagrams and drawings. Um, can you recall um, when it first um, occurred to you to uh, to resort to to those <laughs> kinds of visual compliments? Uh, I think my first resort was in natural history, really. So I've just done it twice, mm -hmm. and I'm very—I must say—I am. Uh, there, there's there are people here to testify that I'm very involved in <laughs> making those pages mm -hmm. and finding those pictures and putting them together, um, and uh, I think that there's a way in which the book, to me, the book as an object is enormously important. Mm. I love the book. I love the book more than ever since we're terribly worried that it may pass from us. Mm. Uh, it won't, no, no, people say it won't, but you know, you don't know. We don't know that yet. We're still in a quandary about all that, but I love the object of the book and I love the idea of an illustration in a book, of, of other ways of looking at um, and connecting to um, story and to ideas. Of course, with ideas, ideas are featherweight compared to the heavy weight of the world. But nevertheless, uh, pictures can can speak of ideas uh, sometimes more easily than words. Mm -hmm. Diagrams can. Mm -hmm. We've been told that often. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'd, I'd like to um, uh, to shift to the um, to the issue of, of history or the historical imagination as it figures, uh, however um, modestly um, or importantly in um, your work, particularly in the new novel. Um, already um, in the pre-publication um, comments uh, that came in um, with, with the book, um, it was praised for um, its historical density, um, in spite of the fact that it's quite clear that it is not, or at least I wouldn't call it, a historical novel um, as such. We've had lots of historical novels we have over lots, the last few yeah. years. This is not a historical novel. But there is um, a sense um, within the work at many places, right, of history, um, um, a sense of history, working um, in the shaping of events, um, in uh, invoking antecedents, parallels, and so on. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the relationship between history and the main narrative, what I would call the main narrative in this book. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an exploration, to my mind, it's an exploration of uh, the larger world, to put it very simply. It's the larger world that we live in, we live against, and I, I'm uh, set against a kind of historical novel in which history is a backdrop, uh, in which it's nothing more than um, public television costuming mm -hmm. of, of a world. And so I want it to be actively involved in the very thoughts of and connected to um, the characters in the book, as well as uh, obviously the narrative uh, voice, whoever is um, whoever is perpetrating this book that they want to give forth to others. Um, so I, I think of uh, at the beginning of the book to be specific about, let's say, how it connects with story in this book. At the beginning of the book, the young people give a millennial party, uh, which is a terrible flop. Um, but what they decide to do is to turn the clock back to the 50s because it's such an innocent time, they say. Of course, not an innocent time at all, but they dress themselves, they costume themselves, they take on the super superficial 50s look. Well, uh, that doesn't really work, and they don't, they don't get it right because they don't get it with any depth. By the end of the book, uh, they are literally in her art, uh, Louise's art show at the end of the, of the book, they are literally living against history, um, li li with and against history, placing themselves and small, mini, micro stories of our little loves, placing them, aga placing them against the largeness of the weight of history and the weight of the world. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those, um, all of those allusions to history are never digressions. They are always amendments. Does that, do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not interested in digressions as such. I'm interested in amendments to, um, to the main story, mm -hmm. which is our story. Therefore, it becomes our story as well as their story. Mm -hmm. um, for those who haven't read 
um, the new novel, uh, I might um, mention that um, in the novel are numbers of um, interpolated passages um, taken from a variety of historical uh, figures and texts, um, William James, uh, Benjamin Franklin, and so on. Um, so far as I can tell, um, these interpolations right, um, don't follow anything like a predictable pattern. They emerge. They emerge um, in a way that is um, I think always somewhat surprising um, and never less than um, moving. Um, many of them are in themselves very beautiful, uh, very shapely. Uh, but again, they don't have um, anything like the momentum we associate with an orderly progression of interpolated passages so that this one must appear here. This one, we feel, once we read it, must have appeared here. There could be no other place for it uh, in, in the narrative. Um, now of course, many of us, when we were younger, um, uh, were taught to value, perhaps to overvalue, the sense of necessity um, built into the structure of, of a novel, as mm -hmm. to any other uh, literary work. Um, and um, we, we can't help noting, I think, um, that that kind of necessity is, is absent um, mm -hmm. here. And so I, I thought I might ask you in connection with the interpolations to speak about them in themselves. Uh -huh. uh, and then, in addition, if it, if it seems to you worthwhile to do so, to talk a little bit about the way that they are placed well, in the text. Whatever it is included is connected, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that they could be any place other than where they are. What I'm doing, uh, it occurred to me, one way of saying uh, what I'm up to uh, is working for, I'm working from my database. That's what I'm doing. I'm working from uh, my files. I'm working from my library, libraries, a lot of stuff about libraries in the book. And I'm also working specifically from the nest that I sit in each day with books and papers around me, very untidy. And I, I sit with all this stuff around me, and it grows and grows and grows while I'm writing. And um, I go to the shelf again, and I look, and I, go, I love libraries. And I, I keep looking and looking. And finally, when um, a quote, say the quote at the end of a passage um, about Venus, people looking up at the stars mm. at night. It swerves to a, a quote, uh, which is from supposedly an unlikely place, but it's not unlikely to me because once again, it's from, it's a connection in, in my head. I think, I think what I'm interested in, Bob, is something that might be compared to process art, if you know what process art is. Do you know the work of Anne Hamilton? Mm -hmm. Do you know the work of, of, of uh, people who are creating in front of you? Mm -hmm. Well, let's, not, let's take it away from, from the fashionable art world. And uh, have you ever gone to a fair and watched a glass blower? Or watched someone making a pot 
uh, or you go up to the Shaker Village and they're, they're showing you how they do the baskets. They steam them and make the wood, uh, make a shaker basket, curve it round. Well, I think that in some ways the various uh, and very intentional um, uh, allusions or amendments to the main story are uh, very much uh, part of my process, my process of see, see how I do it come. And it's also, I think, part of my connection to the audience, to the reader. I so want to connect. Mm -hmm. And that, I would hope that that really allows me to connect. Do you see what I mean? Well, I think, yeah, and I think uh, insofar as, as the uh, those passages as you select them um, and as you present them, foreground them, prepare us for them, uh, uh, move us, mm -hmm. uh, then, then of course your yeah. ambition is realized. Right. I tried something because of St. Valentine's Day. <laughs> I tried something that was much required um, in San Francisco, which was uh, to uh, keep on the theme of St. Valentine's Day. Well, we do have St. Valentine's Day in the book. We do have February 14th. It's the first to three months of the year, the almanac and so forth. But I think that the pressure was on to really think about Valentine's Day. So I thought about some very famous poems. Oh, my love is like a red, red rose, and uh, we wouldn't go no more wandering, uh, the Byron poem and so forth. And I kind of, between the readings, uh, uh, sliced them in, and that was fun as performance, but it doesn't really do service to the book. I mean, everybody was very happy because Valentine's Day is such a big thing now, and they liked listening to my fake Scottish accent. On the other hand, <laughs> those, those I would never have thought when doing assembling the book and writing the book, I would never have so thought of putting in, um, we'll go no more wandering by the light of the moon. Doesn't belong, really. It was okay for Valentine's Day. <laughs> so you see everything, everything that's there is there uh, on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, you've spoken to me, and, and no doubt you've spoken to others, um, about your um, feminist concerns, um, obviously. Um, and you've spoken about um, the degree to which you are reluctant to um, inscribe um, anything like uh, a feminist agenda uh, within uh, your um, fiction. And um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the degree to which you are alert to in the composing of your book um, of a book like this, alert to the impulse to move um, the narrative, to develop a character um, in a way that might, in fact, um, underline um, certain ideas or imperatives, um, which may, in fact, seem to you very attractive, um, but which may, nevertheless, seem um, either inappropriate or coarse um, given the texture of your writing. Uh, and it's a hard question, I think. Yeah, well, the whole problem of, say, social relevance or gender relevance or hyphenated 
whatever, um, uh, whatever ethnic uh, is, is uh, relevance, is something that uh, is with us all. We live in very um, open, democratic, um, uh, in an era in which we are very conscious of all that, of an enormous amount of inclusion. Uh, and I think that's, um, to my mind, um, fine. It's just that what I, what I finally want to uh, give forth as my book is um, a gesture which is not elite in any way, which does not turn away in any uh, uh, fierce way from such uh, relevance, but which is uh, which makes its own story and which says what it wants to say. And of course, one of the things I would say is that um, I've got piles of that in the book, actually. But it isn't. Um, uh, it's not polemic in any way. Nor do. Nor. Nor is it. Uh, I mean, Louise, the painter, has left Wisconsin to make her career, and her great problem is: is she going to be able to actually discover how to? Paint and love, you know, and and uh, even the funny little step forward that her mother takes, understanding uh, how badly brought up she has been by a, a father who was extraordinarily prejudiced, uh, and uh, a husband who is overbearing and who takes no note of her. I mean. People are constantly making their moves, but it doesn't have a label on it, you know. Uh, Brechtian label. I love Brecht, and I must say, uh, one of the things that uh, um, I think the only place where that kind of thing does come through in the book, a kind of almost deranged polemic, is in uh, the sections at the end of each month called The Endless Page, where in fact there is a, um, uh, a, a passionate <laughs> cry about uh, the way we are living, uh, the way we are living, and what we are not paying attention to. Do you see what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a, a, a fairly general question about sentiment in fiction, but it's a question inspired by um, a very, I thought, interesting and odd um, uh, description of one of your earlier um, works um, by a writer. Who, uh, who likes your work very much, namely Alfred Kazin, oh, well. who once used <laughs> the word um, bitterness to identify, I, I, I don't see it myself, but, but, but it leads to an interesting question, I think. Um, used the word bitterness to describe, to identify a, a dominant sentiment in um, your earlier work. Now, um, I'd like at least hypothetically um, to raise the question by supposing that, um, that in fact, um, bitterness were, in some sense, the dominant accent in your work. Is there, um, is there any objection to be made um, to a work um, somewhat dominated by a sentiment, an unpleasant sentiment, like bitterness, hmm? um, provided that the sentiment is not, shall we say, a one-note sentiment, 
um, provided that, in other words, it, it doesn't so entirely dominate the work that there's no room for anything else. Um, you, must have, you must have thought when Alfred Kazin reviewed that earlier book of yours. Um, so way back to Bridgeport Bus? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, come on. Alfred didn't understand the Irish. You know, <laughs> I, I think he has to get on to. <laughs> I don't think he has a... Um, I don't think he has a clue about um, the sharpness of uh, Irish uh, um, and, and Catholic and Irish sense of uh, of guilt, and it's different perhaps in Jewish guilt. But uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, I uh, I find that uh, book, as a matter of fact, I don't look back very often, but I did have to look back, back at that book a while ago. Mm. And um, I find that book anything but bitter. I mean, what happens mm. is that this poor woman really uh, literally writes her way into an identity and a, and a future. I mean, she absolutely liberates herself. Mm. Um, so I, I, I kind of uh, reject the notion of bitterness. In mm -hmm. fact, one has to be very, very careful of sentimentality. Uh, mm the other, the, the flip, other flip side there, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, you, um, you once um, said, um, I think in response um, to um, uh, a question put to you uh, about natural history, um, that there was um, a resistance among many contemporary readers to fiction that um, swings for the fences um, that goes all out. Fiction of very large ambition, mm -hmm. large local ambition, uh, very general ambition. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit um, about your sense of the way in which your own works have tended, um, I think as Susan mentioned a, a little while ago, to become more and more ambitious, and to my mind, more and more satisfying, um, precisely on that account, mm -hmm. um, that they seem to want to take on a lot. Um, yeah, well, one of the things I suppose that I'm less interested in now, though of course there can still be magnificent examples of it, is the small domestic novel. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that there is, uh, especially especially women are, are supposed to produce a small domestic novel. <laughs> Not necessarily small, but a domestic novel. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that uh, I, I, I believe is that the, um, the novel as a form has, um, has stayed quite conventional in the last in recent years, quite conventional. And um, it, it uh, has almost retracted in many cases to more, conven more convention. Now, I do not in any way write, nor do I think anyone with their head screwed on right who's a decent writer, I do not sit, sit down to counter that at all. I mean, that's a, that would be a foolish exercise. I, I don't believe in the experimental in that way. Um, uh, I sit down to just simply tell the story and write what is on my mind. And what is on my mind is almost always an exploration beyond um, the small story. So yes, uh, there is a way in which it, it goes out. Uh, it, the ex that exploration extends out and out and out so that the central part, say, of natural history, which is illustrated 
um, does uh, is like an enormous scrapbook, a gathering together of all that can be found about one place, my hometown of Bridgeport, Connecticut. It takes me as far as, it takes the commentator on those pages as far as uh, Walter Benjamin and Henry James, but it also comes right back down to Barnum's Elephants. Um, a kid asked me up in Connecticut uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, is it important when you're writing about where you came from? And of course I said, I was shocked and I said, yeah, it's pretty important. I think it's very important. And uh, where'd you come from? And he said, oh, no place, Monroe, Connecticut. Well, first of all, Monroe, Connecticut has a pretty nifty name. We know we can go someplace with that. Secondly, it was farmland and it's wall-to-wall uh, -wall, um, Levittown. And I mean, you could, I could go on and on without having been in Monroe for 20 years of material that's sitting there waiting for that young man in Monroe. And uh, yeah, it's very important. It's very important for um, those of us, uh, the writers who are uh, uh, growing up in the great metastasizing mall world of America to know exactly where they, they come from. Uh, which mall? Uh, uh, which which uh, which Toys R Us they shop in? Yes, very important. <laughs> <laughs> um, in in your um, in your new work, um, sex is is handled with, um, I I would say the the deafness that's very characteristic of your um, of your writing generally, um, and. Um, a frightening sexual encounter is evoked by means of very carefully selected uh, details. Uh, in reading in reading through such a passage, one has a sense that um, a great deal more um, in the way of explicit detail might have been uh, um, expended um, in such a passage, and yet um, one has a sense that more would have been altogether out of keeping with uh, the sort of settled uh, style of the novel as a whole. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the representation of sex in, um, in fiction, um, in your own, if you like, and <laughs> is, is this as difficult a matter as um, quite a number of contemporary writers say it is? Um, difficult, you mean, in terms of um, actually getting it down on the page because it's been done and done and done? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. it's been done and done and done. Yeah, so exactly. it has to be meaningful and fresh and really work again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not demure, for heaven's sakes, and I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, backing away. Yeah. Uh, but uh, actually, um, I think there's a, um, a place... Let me find that. That would be fun. There's mm. a place where I address that problem in a sense and talk to the reader about it if I can if I can find it um, uh, in which I talk about the expectation of the reader uh, the expectation now is to have it all there right there's no reason why you can't see or see hear every um, every bit of it. I'm not, not sure I'm going to be able to find it. Let me see if I can. Um, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, just a section where Louise and Artie, the young lovers, finally get together on um, uh, New Year's Day, leap year day, the extra day we're granted. And I just have uh, this little thing. I won't read the scene, but here I am. This is what I do with it. This is an exact, this is an answer, <laughs> exactly. Um, is that they, um, uh, uh, they get together and um, she ha already has a few gray hairs and he counts them and so forth. And in the cold light of day, he steals to the bathroom where he sees the burnt out boy. This is Arthur Freeman. Uh, whose mother in the high 60s has given him that, uh, saddled him with the allegorical name, her loony idea that her son would be born free of the system, would wheel free of the dominant culture. And Louise slips into the jacuzzi beside him. They lie side by side, no fooling around. The water whirls, engulfs them in scalding, purgation, friendly reader. You prefer another go at insatiable ecstasy, the passionate reunion, bodies inflamed, feverish after long separation, swift contraction of vulva, seeping fluids of desire. But these lovers proceed with solemnity, tidying their bed at dusk, like it says in the old song, turning night into day, and so forth. You see what I mean? Yeah. I'm totally withdrawn from that. I don't want to give that. That isn't, and nor does it in any way have to do with the tremendous sense of purgation and the tremendous sense of how wrong they have been to ever fall apart and how hard it is to come together again. Um, there is a kind of um, uh, sex scene before that in which having been apart and so unhappy for so many weeks, they do come together and he counts her ribs because she hasn't eaten and, and their bodies are, are starved for each other literally in a sense and, and down to skin and bones and that to me is more interesting about their sexuality than the scene I've refused to write. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, I think that really terrific writing, really marvelous sensual writing about sensual writing about sex is still wonderful. It's just that it doesn't, um, I don't see, I don't see where it fits in this book or I don't see where it fits in without betraying character. Do you see what I mean? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the example you, you give um, in response to that question, um, you, um, you cite um, one of the uh, passages in the novel uh, where you address the reader um, directly. Mm -hmm. um, now this is, uh, it seems to me, just one uh, among a great many devices which you are free um, in, in this novel as you develop it to use, um, to cast off, um, to move on from. Um, and, of course, um, it's a device which, on the one hand, um, particularly when the reader is admonished directly, um, would seem to be a, a very deliberate, almost a defiant throwback um, to an older kind of, of novel, an older kind of authorial voice breaking the narrative frame. Um, but, of course, in a novel like this, um, uh, that kind of device is uh, inevitably going to seem uh, very ironic, very playful, mm -hmm. um, in some ways even um, arch. Um, and of course it reminds us of how many devices there are at work in a novel like this um, mm -hmm. and how much 
um, you are, you've, you've mastered all of them and put them all together in a way that seems, uh, I would say, very imperious um, um, in the way that one associates with a, a writer who's very sure of her own devices and, and, uh, and permits herself um, what she needs to. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, the, the address to the reader um, and the well, way it operates. It's by way, actually, of uh, it's a further gesture towards collaboration, mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. And it's not uh, in any, any sense a scolding of the reader. It is playful, but mm -hmm. it goes back, of course, to the 18th century novel, and it certainly goes back to Ben Franklin's almanac, and always had kind reader, tolerant reader, and all that uh, sprinkled through poor Richard's almanac. Uh, and he certainly wanted his public, he wanted his public to, um, to be there for him, and the public was there for, for him. It was the first great bestseller in this country. Mm. Um, the, the idea of my connection, to the writer's connection, not my connection, the writer's connection to the reader is enormously important. And whatever mask I wear while writing, whatever uh, uh, first person comes in, whatever uh, mask of um, um, the writer as conjurer or the writer as persuader is all, is all a mask um, uh, uh, which does not mean that I have authority at all. In fact, the writer, uh, I would say, almost questions her authority by shifting masks from time to time to time. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. undermining mm -hmm. the idea of some kind of extraordinary authority mm -hmm. by playing with it. Mm -hmm. For if it were consistent throughout, I would worry, mm -hmm. but it isn't. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's an authority that has that again has to do with with the permission you give yourself to to cast off these um, uh, these perspectives, um, these devices, and so on, and to play with them as you um, as you say. Right. Um, I um, I noted um, in uh, a New York Times review of of the book um, the following very very brief. Um, was said that the failed lovers of the novel, Artie and Louise, are willy-nilly representatives of their time. Um, this struck me as a, as a curious, suggestive um, uh, notion, um, potentially actually quite misleading uh, when one thinks about these characters and when one thinks about character and fiction generally. Um, and I thought I might ask you to talk a little bit about what um, it might say of characters in a work like this that they are representative of their time. I mean, of some statistical norm, um, of some set of, of identifiable attitudes, um, of some leading edge. Um, in the culture, I, I'm not sure I, I would well, understand what they are. Well, well, I don't. I think well-drawn characters, uh, uh, even the veneerings in a 19th-century novel, or uh, in Thackeray or Dickens or whatever, even if if you're working towards character as caricature, mm -hmm. uh, they never are truly just representative if they are well done. Mm -hmm. And um, characters, uh, uh, in a sense, are captured by their time in this book. Uh, that is that uh, the 
the woman who was dead, the mother, Fiona, the Artie's mother, Fiona, uh, was, uh, he presumed, Miss 60s, I mean, the, the honey of the 60s. Uh, much is found out through the story itself. And it would be uh, obvious uh, uh, to, to say that no, 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 in the end, she was not really that at all. Mm -hmm. Nor would you say that uh, the business of the innocent 50s, you might say that um, uh, Sylvie, the old woman who comes together after 50 years with her old lover, uh, Cyril, that they have done what people did in the 50s. She stayed within her marriage after their short passion. And uh, he married uh, the um, uh, Irish Catholic girl, uh, Park Avenue Irish Catholic debutante he was supposed to marry. Uh, that's, that's in a sense very 50s. But that doesn't in any way take away from the fact that then when the full story is explored, they are much fuller people than and anything of that, than just symbols of or, or representative of an age. Mm -hmm. In fact, they work, every character, characters come with their prehistory to a book. And they are not free of that prehistory. Uh, and so you're working both with the past and the illusory present and of course, anything, this is a millennial novel to a certain extent, anything about the future is fabricated. Must be. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So uh, characters uh, as representative figures, um, uh, it's only one level on which they are representative. And then when you go beyond the miniskirt and the go-go boots, you find Fiona, the mother. Do you see what I mean? Oh, yes. Yeah. I think um, it, it's time to um, to take some audience questions for Maureen. Um, please feel free. Come, come, come. <laughs> Surely there's a question or two. Um. That was the question. That was the question. I thought that was just a statement. No. What Bob was saying was suppose that did was a dominant tone. Then suppose, suppose it was a dominant tone. Then what would you have?
Yeah, oh, there is always, uh, to, my, to me, there's always, I know exactly what you mean about Beckett, who I love. I mean, it is, it, it is um, one tone, yes. It is a tone, and that tone is very powerful. Um, in certain works of Kafka, there is a single tone that we must stay with and so forth, which I admire and like very much. But the many voices is what I'm interested in. And uh, a bitterness seems to me an odd word uh, to, uh, to use about someone who, con uh, to a writer who constantly is finding more other tones within one work, within the, t within the tapestry. Um, if we go back to the tapestry, another image that comes to mind um, is uh, something like a triptych. I worry terribly about some of our reading habits, how we regress and don't want to be open as readers. Um, I want to be open. Um, um, Umberto Eco, uh, you know, uses the uh, term the open work. And I feel uh, very attached to the idea of the open work, um, the work which is uh, that we can see almost in motion. And, uh, and yet, of course, that work is, uh, um, has to be an organic whole. I think of a triptych because I, I think in terms of reading, if you, if you think of viewing a triptych in which you see the let's say simply, the Annunciation, the Nativity, and the Crucifixion, you have three stories within the frames that are attached to each other. Then at the bottom, you have other stories. You may have St. John the Baptist, and you may have um, uh, St. Catherine with her wheel. You have all the other stories, that, depending on place, depending on where, who did this. I'm thinking particularly of a Perugino that we saw this summer. Um, you have uh, the patrons, perhaps. You have all the other things that accrue to what we are looking at. And that, though it is very set in ways and set in time, uh, that surely was to the painter, the maker of that at the time, an open work. Do you see what I mean? That he had to put together with all those elements. And I, um, I, I attracted very much to that kind of um, uh, work in motion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I, I, I would just add to that that I, I was posing this as a question, and uh, I, I would certainly say that some of my very favorite writers are, uh, at least in particular books, one-note writers, um, uh, who are not looking at all to represent a, um, a wide range of, of tones, at least, in a given work. I think of, of certain works of Naipaul, for example, who's one of my favorite writers, um, where, where the tone is um, severe, um, detached, um, ironic, 
um, where there's no trace of what I would call warmth um, at all, and one doesn't miss it. At least I don't miss it. Um, or I think of a, a writer um, that I, I teach every year, um, who's Ingeborg Bachmann in a novel like Malina, um, where the tone is hysterical um, throughout, uh, victimized and hysterical, and one would never, th I think, want it any other way. I mean, it's, it's absolutely authentic um, and sustained perfectly um, from beginning to end. Um, but, um, but, I, but again, there's, there's another kind of writing, and clearly um, your recent work is another kind of writing altogether. So the question I was raising was yeah. purely hypothetical. Yeah, no, I really do, I really do, of course, obviously like the idea of orchestrating tones, and I have to be very um, um, careful because uh, uh, some of my students um, some of them who are here tonight are terribly careful about sentimentality, mm. and uh, <laughs> they're worried. Uh, of course, I'm I'm uh, of such a grand age that I'm allowed now <laughs> moments of sentimentality, which they are not, uh, because they have to be cool. I don't have to be cool anymore. It's great, um, but uh, there are uh, there are moments that uh, if I can find yesterday, Michael. Uh, Silverbutt asked me to read something I never would have thought of reading if I can find it, and I may not be able to find it, so we'll forget about it. Um, it's called The Best Molasses Can Candy, but I don't know where it is. Uh, in any case, uh, he said, uh, the reason I want you to read it is because it's so tender. <laughs> and I thought, wait, I had one moment of saying, uh-oh, oh dear. <laughs> Whoops, tender, bad. <laughs> Can't go that way, you know. Um, but uh, uh, I'm not sure, and, and, and he, he liked the idea, uh, apparently, liked the idea that there were places where uh, things settled out um, in a way that is, uh, I suppose, that's the right word. There is, in fact, a tenderness about it, so. Well, I'm, I, I think that women attach to family. I mean, this, is, this has traditionally been our role. I'm a dreadfully housey person. I cannot help myself. Um, I don't know what to do about it. I do worry about it, but, I <laughs> but I'm not sure I can ever be free of being a housey person. On the other hand, I don't want it to, uh, be, uh, to lead me by the nose in my work. I, 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 I think that um, it, it would be entirely too comfortable almost, or, or the expect my expectations. I'd set the hurdles lower if I retreated to a very small domestic novel. Uh, in a larger sense, I think it's because what people people feel that they know is domestic relations. We all do, but um, almost a sense of of uh, not being able to look up and out. Do you see what I mean? They, the 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 small story is what we love. Uh, many many people love it. What? 
<laughs> these dreadful domestic stories. They're not all dreadful, but I mean some are. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, no, uh, George Eliot uh, and Virginia Woolf uh, were pretty interested in politics, weren't they? And uh, Willa Cather uh, was interested in, uh, you know, we can name a whole uh, list of people, some of them here, um, who, um, women writers who, who have not uh, gone to the domestic novel particularly at all. Uh, well, for f for fear of for fear of being um, crass, uh, I would say uh, quickly it sells, and many many women want to relate to uh, the printed page in that way. They want to hear their own story again. You know, they do. Um, that, that's a tremendous um, obvious. Uh, bomb satisfaction to people, uh, rather than the um, the sense of, of uh, in any way having to work at the larger world and see oneself in it. There's someone in the audience here tonight who said to me, on a um, a telephone, um, on a tape on a telephone, uh, said about the almanac, um, actually. Um, he said, um, you have to learn to read this book. And we never finished that conversation. Um, and it's Richard Powers. And we never finished that conversation because, uh, I don't know, somehow communication, which is terribly important, uh, we never got to that. And uh, what I should have called right back and said is, but you have to learn to read every book you care about in a sense. You're always learning to read. I mean, you have to learn to read Susan Powers, Joanna Scott. You have to learn who's here. You have to learn to read all those people. Angela Carter, Pynchon, Hardy, Dickens. I would, you could make a huge list of people, uh, books that you love, and, and stop without going even to Proust and Joyce <coughs> and say, yes, you have to learn to read them. Do you see what I mean? And that's, I think, you don't perhaps have to learn to read the small domestic novel. Mm. Could I just say uh, just one word, that, namely that um, that some of um, I think some of um, our favorite um, novels are likely to be domestic novels. Um, very great domestic novels have appeared in this period. Um, one of the best books I think of the last. Um, 40 years or so is Natalia Ginsburg's Family Sayings, um, a magnificent uh, book, which is part novel, part memoir. Um, I think one of Anita Bruckner's best books, um, not a great book, but a very good book, um, is a domestic novel called Dolly. Um, she doesn't, I agree. That's why, mm. that's why I named the specific one that, that seems to me uh, describable in those terms. I agree with you. She's not a writer of domestic novels. Typically, I would never describe her that way in general. But Dolly um, is a novel which seems to me describable in those terms. There are uh, at least a couple of books by William Trevor which don't have any political dimension at all, which are, I think, describable as domestic novels. They're quite wonderful. So I think, I mean, as, as with any other genre, um, the success of the work depends not on what the genre is, but who's, who's working it, who's, who's, who's doing the domestic novel. 
I mean, even oh, it does with any genre. You know, yeah, I mean, the problem is we we back away from genre and say, oh, you know, mystery story or sci-fi or whatever. Any of it can be done. You know, a any of it can be well done, and well done even in a way that makes us say, ah, it isn't really quite just sci-fi, or it yeah. isn't, it's all open, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the domestic novel, too, my lord, I do hope that uh, it would be wonderful to, to find it. Could we call something like Marilyn Robinson's uh, <laughs> uh, Housekeeping, housekeeping? Uh, yeah, a domestic Can novel? Uh, you know, that's, they, they, um, and, and surely I have uh, been guilty of a lot of uh, uh, domestic novel stuff in, in what I've done. Um, but I, I think what we're discussing is the fact when it gets so small that it, it no longer has any surprise, just a kind of uh, formulaic, yeah, right. Oh, I think it unfolds itself as you work. I mean, you do have a, I mean, I don't, every writer writes in a different way. I have some, you know, larger picture, but then tapestry, you know, you start and sometimes you unravel too. So uh, take some stitches out. Uh, it's hard, hard to say. Um, shall we? A question. What, a question. Hypertext, um, yeah, I have looked into hypertext, and I have I have read a lot of stuff about hypertext, and I I, I think it's a uh, I think it's very interesting. I don't know what's going to happen with it, uh, to tell you the truth. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's a very interesting idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to read a tender moment. It's very short, okay? And then we'll end up. The tender moment that Michael made me read called The Best Molasses Candy. Um, the, uh, I suppose, uh, what got him uh, was very interesting. <laughs> was it, it's, uh, it's about two people who are in a um, marriage of um, accommodation and uh, from very different backgrounds, uh, completely different backgrounds. And here's the thing I would never have thought of reading, but I'll read it. Uh, tender though it may be at the end. Not quite sure it's that tender, but then, okay. The best molasses candy. Stir two cups of molasses and two teaspoons of vinegar in a granite or scotch saucepan until the syrup forms a ball when dropped in cold water. Remove from the fire and quickly add two tablespoons of butter. 
Sylvia Nicewanger remembered the rich, decorated chocolates of a particular sweet shop in Innsbruck. She was often treated to one of her favorite truffles by the confectioner who attended her flirtatious mother, hoping that Frau Nicewanger might throw him a departing kiss. The black chocolate was so dense and rich, the daughter's little mouth puckered with expectant joy. When, after the scrambling life of a refugee, she married in America, Sylvie had long been used to accommodations. Her husband, a widower with small children, brought her to his house in Connecticut, his family home, which, for this country, was old. He had been a squadron commander in the Second World War, a chicken colonel who flew with his man. Bob Waite was now an airline executive. One cold night at the end of January, after he put the kids to bed, he discovered Sylvie at the kitchen sink, singing to herself in German, her tears mingling with the soapy water. He found a bottle of Brer Rabbit molasses and the vinegar, stirred it in a pot over the flame till the ball was formed, all as his people had done it, with no cream or chocolate in the cupboard. Come, he said to his young Austrian wife, and he took his pot out the back door and poured the syrup on the snow. It formed a sheet of brittle amber. He broke a piece and gave it to Sylvie. The pale sugar frosted with snow was watery, watery as it cracked against her teeth. She smiled down at her husband kneeling before her with his pot and spoon and said, this is the best molasses candy.